today on Against the Grain, Trotskyism played a key role in the development of the U.S. left. Among American Trotskyists, James P. Cannon stood out. I'm CS. The historian Brian Palmer talks about Cannon, socialism, and U.S. working-class militancy coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. You don't need to be steeped in the history of leftist, socialist, and revolutionary movements to know the name Leon Trotsky. But you probably haven't heard of James Cannon, even though he was a key figure in the U.S. left and, according to Brian D. Palmer, the founder of American Trotskyism. The second volume of Palmer's three-volume series on Cannon came out last year. It's called James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928-38. to The book examines Cannon's beliefs, his engagement with radical left formations in the U.S., and his involvement in a number of pivotal labor struggles. I asked Brian Palmer, Emeritus Professor of History at Trent University in Ontario, Canada, to prepare a set of remarks about James Cannon, we would then engage in some Q&A. Here's Brian Palmer talking about socialism, Trotskyism, and the role Cannon played in a variety of struggles. Well, let me introduce you today to a man named James Patrick Cannon. Uh, in November of 1929, he was approximately 40 years old, and he sat at his desk late into the night, uh, penning a poem, which I want to just read to you briefly. The poem starts, They say he was defeated. He went down to everlasting failure and disgrace on that gray morning when they woke the town to see him hanging in the marketplace. Long has he moldered in the graveyard gloom, never to rebel or rise again. The dust of forty years is on his tomb, and dust in all his dreams, they say, in vain. A canon penned this poem to a man named Albert Parsons, who had been executed in 1886, uh, by the United States government for his role in an uprising of workers struggling for the eight-hour day uh, in May in Chicago. Parsons had been a part of a, an anarchist and early radical mobilization of workers, and a bomb had been thrown, not by Parsons, at that demonstration on the Haymarket Square. One policeman was dead, uh, and a number of other people injured, and this event is often regarded in American history as the first Red Scare, the first real mobilization of the state against radicals confronting capitalism, employers, and uh, the political forces that uh, they relied on to carry out their programs. Um, Cannon, looking back on Parsons, seems to reflect in this poem that he had been defeated, uh, that he was hanged, that he uh, uh, really, his dreams had been in vain. Um, it was a gloomy moment in 1929 for Cannon, for reasons that I'll get into in, uh, shortly. But who was he? Well, Jim Cannon, as he was often known, was a young man who had gravitated to radicalism in his youth. His parents had been first-generation Irish immigrants. He was raised in an industrial suburb of Kansas City, Kansas, a place called Rosedale where he quickly assimilated his father's radicalism. He was schooled in labor defense campaigns for class struggle prisoners in the sort of rough and tumble years of the opening 20th century. Uh, he joined the Industrial Workers of the World, a radical uh, syndicalist organization that believed that the political struggle would be carried out at the point of production in workplaces across the land. He later gravitated to the Socialist Party of America, which had a more uh, political orientation to struggles of workers and thought that electing labor's representatives, uh, but also struggling uh, in workplaces would be the better path to changing and transforming American society. Uh, the war, World War I, and the Russian Revolution of 1917 influenced Cannon greatly. 
uh, and he became part of what was an early communist underground in the uh, years immediately following World War I. By an underground, I mean that they were not uh, agitating openly, but were uh, sort of ensconced in underground cells, secretive clandestine organization. Um, Cannon led the charge out of that uh, sort of cloistered way of doing politics and into a more above ground, open political organization uh, and campaigning for workers' rights. Um, he epitomized the radicalization of uh, elements of the American working class in an epoch that saw socialism's rise, that saw uh, Eugene Debs score probably the largest electoral votes for a radical candidate in much of the history of the United States. And in 1921, Cannon had chaired uh, the meeting that founded the Communist Party of the United States, a uh, left-wing organization that affiliated with the Communist International based in Moscow and that saw the need for workers to engage in revolutionary activity to secure not only better jobs, but a better political system in which workers would be accorded rights that they lacked under capitalism. Uh, for the next eight years following Cannon founding that meeting of the Communist Party, James Cannon played a leading role in the Communist Party. He founded the International Labor Defense Organization in 1925, which was the Communist Party's wing for defending uh, prisoners that had gone to uh, jail or that were facing deportation uh, for their activities on the part of workers. Uh, he was probably one of the three leading figures in the Communist Party over the course of the 1920s. Uh, he made a number of trips to Moscow uh, where he met uh, leading figures of the Russian Revolution uh, and where he saw firsthand uh, what he thought were the tremendous accomplishments of socialist revolution. But over the course of the 1920s, Cannon also grew disaffected with his place in the Communist Party and with the Communist Party's place in American society. Uh, he made trips to Moscow, to be sure, but he spent most of his time traveling the country. Uh, he was often based in New York uh, or Chicago, and he was dedicated to building a party that was integrated into the American working class and that fought for its uh, uh, gains and that led successful struggles. Increasingly, he saw the American party as too uh, uh, bound up with uh, directives from Moscow, which caused it to be isolated from or uh, losing touch with uh, the American working class. He saw some of the orientation emanating from Moscow as leading in the wrong ways and the wrong directions. Uh, and he grew, in some senses, alienated from the party that he had helped to found and that he was a leading figure within. In 1928, he attended a meeting in Moscow of the Communist International, and he was introduced to a critique of the policies of Joseph Stalin, who by that time had replaced Vladimir Lenin as the leader uh, of the party and of the state uh, in, in Moscow and the, and the Soviet Union. Uh, and that critique of Stalin's policies was uh, authored by a man named Leon Trotsky, who, like Lenin, had been one of the leading figures in the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Trotsky had grown over the course of the mid-1920s, increasingly disaffected with Joseph Stalin's policies, which he saw gravitating away from the Communist International's orientation towards uh, what had always been social uh, um, revolutionary socialism and world revolution, the need to build revolution, not just uh, in the Soviet Union, but throughout the world. Without this kind of world revolution approach, Trotsky argued, socialism was bound to be suffocated and stamped out inside the Soviet Union. And Trotsky penned in 1928 a critique of Stalin's policies that suggested that this process had already begun, that Stalin was following a policy not of world revolution, but of socialism in one country, of subordinating communist parties around the world to the dictates of the Communist International in Moscow, 
and thus using those communist parties around the world to facilitate and develop the prospects of socialism inside the Soviet Union rather than extending the revolution globally and ensuring the success and continuity of the revolution thereby inside the Soviet Union as well. Now this critique resonated with James Cannon's own experiences inside the Communist Party of the United States and he saw that it, he, he said that it really it, it opened his eyes to a lot of problems and to a lot of misapplications of Marxist theory and to a great deal of uh, uh, wrong turns that have been taken inside the United States. He decided then to embrace Trotsky's ideas and to fight for them inside the Communist Party. And he returned to the United States in 1928, dedicated to do this. That's Brian Palmer talking about his book, James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928-38. to Brian, spelled with a Y, is an historian of labor and the left and an emeritus professor at Trent University in Canada. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Let's return to more of Brian's remarks. Now, you have to understand that at the time, Stalin was increasingly moving against Trotsky and any other critics inside the Soviet Union and around the world. And to be associated with Trotsky in 1928 was, in fact, a, a kind of death knell for your place in the party. Cannon himself understood that he was about to lose what he called his swivel chair in the offices uh, of the American Communist Party in the United States. He was going to be essentially denigrated and dismissed from his positions. And this is exactly what happened. And it's in this context that he writes this poem about Albert Parsons, in which he expresses you know, fear in some senses that his own legacy will only result in disappointment and despair. Uh, because in 1929, as he was penning this poem, Cannon was in fact being turfed out of the Communist Party that he helped to found. He was uh, discovered to be an advocate of Trotsky, and he and a few supporters around him, his partner Rose Karstner, and two young protégés that he had schooled in the Communist Party, Martin Abern and Max Schachman, were essentially drummed out of the party in 1928-29, along with dozens of others that the Communist Party leadership suspected of harboring sympathies for Cannon and his particular uh, and new political direction. By 1930, approximately 150 of these former communists had been kicked out of the party or had willingly aligned themselves and allowed themselves to be expelled by embracing Cannon and his political program. This small group uh, formed a new political organization, an external opposition, a left-wing opposition to the Communist Party of the USA. It was known as the Communist League of America, bracket opposition. There was not a more inauspicious time to form a new communist organization in the U.S. The country had just entered into the Great Depression. Many of its members were unemployed, seeking work. There was a downturn in the class struggle. The number of strikes dropped off to virtually nil. Workers considered that they had to hang on by their fingernails to any jobs and any kind of gains they had made in the past, lest they be uh, sort of snuffed out in the depressed context of the early 1930s. And in this context of difficulty, Cannon himself suffered a number of personal blows. Rose Karstner, his partner, uh, struggling to sort of work herself through the fact that she had just broken from a communist party in which she had worked for more than a decade, uh, had a nervous breakdown. Cannon himself faced from his younger colleagues like Max Shackman and Martin Abern increasing criticisms for not being adequately uh, committed to the movement. These young allies of, of Cannon, I think, saw themselves uh, as kind of heirs apparent to the new mobilization and new struggles of the time. 
And Cannon himself described this period as the dog days of uh, the revolutionary movement. Very little seemed to be moving Cannon and others out of this. They had stalled at a small number of members, and they really couldn't make breakthroughs against the much larger Communist Party, which had thousands of members, and which was really the leading force on the American uh, radical scene at the time that Cannon and his followers left the party. Uh, it was very difficult to convince leftists, for instance, that they should join up with this new and small and upstart organization when the old organization was seemingly leading the charge against capitalism in increasingly radical ways. What broke the logjam that Cannon and those around him were sort of locked into was an upturn in 1934. Uh, by that time, the Depression's ill effects were lessening slightly, and workers were realizing that there was a need to struggle to create more militant and new forms of organization. There was an in increasing strike activity, and increasingly the sentiment was that the old American Federation of Labor uh, craft unions that were called business unions and that were uh, essentially locked into fairly antiquated and conservative understandings of how to organize workers and wanted to organize only the skilled and not the mass production workers that were becoming increasingly and obviously central uh, to American capitalism in new industries like auto, steel, electrical, etc. And with this upturn in the class struggle and with this new sensibility around organizing, Cannon and those around him played fundamental roles in three particular areas. They helped to lead a New York uh, workers' strike in 1933-34, which, while not in the end gaining them much in the way of victories, uh, in some senses really spoke to the sense to which there were new sectors of the working class that were on the march. Among older sectors of the working class, like the miners of Illinois, who were fed up with the old uh, established unions and their refusal to sort of break out of outmoded uh, understandings of how workers should organize. There were also new developments, and a progressive miners' movement in Illinois uh, turned to Cannon and others for advice on how to structure their opposition to the, to the established and fairly at that time conservative leadership of the United Mine Workers of America. Um, but the real breakthrough came among truckers in Minneapolis in 1934, where Cannon's followers, the three Dunn brothers, uh, Vincent Ray Dunn, Miles Dunn, and Grant Dunn, united with others and led a massive uh, truckers mobilization that waged three different strikes over the course of 1934 and brought the Minneapolis truckers out of the doldrums of uh, organization in which uh, they were led by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and into a new industrial union of all truckers, market workers, uh, and others who worked in the transportation sector. Under the leadership of explicit Trotskyists and people who were committed revolutionary communists, the Minneapolis truckers went from an organization with barely 150 members at the beginning of 1934 to an organization at the end of that year that had a dues-paying membership of over 7,000. The three strikes that they, they waged led to confrontations with local police, the National Guard, strikers were killed, vigilantes working on the part of the employers were killed, the strike became national news, and in newsreels across the country, there were depictions of the street battles that the truckers and their supporters engaged in. And Minneapolis, in some sense, put Cannon and the Communist League of America, this upstart Trotskyist organization, very much on the map. John L. Lewis, a mine workers leader who was increasingly becoming aware that new ways of organizing and organizing of the unorganized needed to break out of the old AFL sort of understandings of limiting workers' organization to the skilled, looked to the Minneapolis strike 
saw the struggles that workers had waged there, and really it helped him to formulate understandings of how to form a new organization which would emerge in the later 1930s, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. So the meaning of Minneapolis was that within the very heart of conservative craft unionism, within the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, it was possible for workers led by revolutionary communists in the Communist League of America to actually break out of the confinements uh, that had sort of incarcerated trade unionism in inactivity for more than two decades. And this springboarded Cannon and his followers into closer and closer alliances uh, with a number of other progressive and radicalizing groups. They actually fused or merged with an organization led by Abraham Johannes Musty, the American Workers' Party, in 1935 and 36. And from that fusion, they doubled and tripled uh, their numbers. And those, that group, the Workers' Party, led by Cannon and Musty, then entered into the Socialist Party of America in 1936 to 1937, a party that had been established on the American scene since the turn of the century, uh, that had formerly been led by Eugene Debs, and that in the 1930s was led by Norman Thomas. You are listening to Brian Palmer, Emeritus Professor of History and former Canada Research Chair at Trent University in Ontario, Canada. This is Against the Grain, and I'm C.S. Song. And I had asked Brian to prepare a set of remarks about his latest book, the second in a planned three-volume series about James Cannon. The book is titled James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928-38. to We return now to more of Brian's talk. In the Socialist Party of America, Cannon and his comrades formed a, a left wing, and Cannon himself played a role with his followers in almost taking over the uh, state organization of the Socialist Party in California, where Cannon edited an extremely effective agitational labor newspaper, Labor Action, and where he worked closely with the Siemens Union of the Pacific in a momentous 1936-1937 strike. The Minneapolis Teamsters continued uh, their work organizing truckers and extended the gains uh, that had been registered in that city uh, to an 11-state inter-road trucker organization led by one of Cannon's comrades, Farrell Dobbs. In the midst of this, Cannon and, and company were always battling the slanders and slurs and attacks of the established Communist Party, which still was much larger than these Trotskyist ranks. And what Cannon and company faced in these, in these years was that more and more progressives were gravitating to uh, the Soviet Union as an alternative to the uh, United States, which was locked in the uh, throes uh, and, the, and the downward spiral of the Great Depression. As that happened, inside the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin was consolidating his hold and, as Trotsky has, had predicted, leading what was left of the revolution of 1917 uh, into destruction. Stalin, over the course of the 1930s, uh, followed a course of action that virtually eliminated, through Moscow uh, kangaroo court trials, through imprisonment, torture, uh, banishment to Siberian camps, uh, and execution, he virtually eliminated the entire leadership of the old Bolshevik revolution. Trotsky himself was driven uh, in exile from the, from the Soviet Union. He established himself in Turkey, was forced out of there, uh, spent time in France and in Norway, and finally eventually settled with the help of the American Trotskyists in Mexico in the late 1930s. Uh, he would, of course, later be executed by an agent of Joseph Stalin in 1940. Cannon and others tried desperately to counter the increasingly vitriolic and violent assault of Stalin uh, and his followers against Trotsky. And in the late 30s, one of their great victories was in convincing 
uh, John Dewey, a progressive uh, philosopher and uh, well-known in human rights and civil liberty circles, to chair a uh, hearing in Mexico where Trotsky was interviewed and allowed to defend himself against the charges of Stalin. And that hearing gained worldwide attention, uh, and it revealed the Communist International's uh, degeneration and the extent to which they were willing to go to essentially lie about Trotsky's activities, labeling him an agent of capitalism and fascism and calling for his execution. Um, other gains were made as well uh, in trade unions in the auto sector. Cannon and his followers uh, registered some victories and pressured the emerging United Automobile Workers uh, into uh, more left-wing stands. Among black workers, the uh, early Trotskyist movement struggled as well to make inroads into the black community. They recruited notable Caribbean Marxists like C.L.R. James uh, to their cause, uh, and they engaged in a whole series of other endeavors on many fronts. Um, in 1937, uh, after spending a considerable time in the Socialist Party, Cannon and uh, his allies there were drummed out of the Socialist Party, expelled for their left-wing views, uh, and when they made their exit, they took with them a number uh, of recruits that they had uh, convinced within the Socialist Party uh, of their uh, uh, adherence to a program of, of revolutionary possibility. Uh, they won many young uh, and upcoming socialist militants as well as a number of working-class advocates. And at this point, then, Cannon chaired the founding uh, in 1938 of the Socialist Workers' Party, the first and foremost Trotskyist organization at that time in the United States. He was, by this point, uh, highly respected by Trotsky, who assigned him a pivotal role in orchestrating the development of Trotsky's Fourth International to succeed the Third International uh, centered in Moscow. Uh, that took place in the summer of 1938, and Cannon was at the meetings in Europe where it consolidated. The American uh, Socialist Workers' Party was at this time the largest and most influential Trotskyist organization in the world. In subsequent developments, Cannon would face many trials and tribulations. Uh, during World War II, uh, he was jailed under the uh, Smith Act, a piece of legislation that targeted those who opposed the war. He was uh, jailed in the mid-1940s for a period of 18 months. He faced a series of factional fights in which he had to break from a number of his oldest comrades, including Max Shackman and, to some extent, Martin Abern, over differences on what the nature of the Soviet Union under Stalin's leadership was. He also, however, stayed a revolutionary course throughout these years, and he, he, he remained the leader of the Socialist Workers' Party into the 1950s uh, when he finally uh, took formal retirement, although he was an influential figure into the 1960s and into the 70s when he died in 1973. I'd like to read in some senses what is a, a capstone to his own sense of himself in this period. At his 60th birthday party, uh, in 1950, he and Rose Karstner, his lifelong partner, were celebrated by the ranks of the Socialist Workers' Party. Uh, he reflected on how he and Rose had confronted their break from Stalinism in the 1930s. When we were 40, he said, we took stock of the situation at that time. That was when we, when we had been expelled from the Communist Party for defending the program of Trotsky, and we had to start all over again. We were 40, that's older than 20, a little tired. We realized that revolution is rather a young people's occupation, something like athletics. But we had to recognize that the movement depended upon us more than ever before, and that we had to make an exception of ourselves. And so we said, we'll give 10 more years to the party. And those 10 years were indeed, in Cannon's words, busy and active years. There seemed no time, he thought, to count them. And when they were over, Cannon was older yet again. 
but he was proud that he had carried forward the socialist aspirations of his youth. And let me read now just the concluding paragraph uh, to the book that focuses on canon uh, that I've written that covers the years 1928 to 1938. Every man's younger self, Cannon was fond of saying, is his better self. He had come out of Rosedale, Kansas, a 20-year-old member of the Industrial Workers of the World, looking for truth and justice. He found answers in the Russian Revolution, and he remained committed to its purpose, rather than acquiescing in its demise, which he certainly experienced over the course of the mid to late 1920s. Trotskyism for Cannon provided him with the politics of the left opposition, which he came to cautiously with an understanding of how to revive the promise of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 and apply its lessons in the United States. He never found it possible, he said, to even think of renouncing my citizenship in the socialist future of humanity. Cannon thus gave his 10 more years to building the Revolutionary Party that he saw as necessary to the creation of that golden future that he wanted for humanity. And in the process, James Cannon helped transform the development of the American left, leaving a militant revolutionary footprint on the landscape of class relations in what was then the world's most powerful capitalist nation. The historian Brian Palmer talking about his book, James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928-38, to 38, published by Brill. I'm CS. The program is Against the Grain. And we've put a link on againstthegrain.org to that book and also to the first book Brian wrote about Cannon. It has the title, James P. Cannon and the Origins of the American Revolutionary Left, 1890 to 1928. I engaged in some Q&A with Brian Palmer. Here's the interview. I'd like to have you talk more about Leon Trotsky. You've shared some important information about this world historical figure. What more can you tell us about who Trotsky was and what he experienced and accomplished? In some senses, Trotsky is, I would argue, one of the most important Marxists in the history of Marxism. His role in the Russian Revolution was second only to Lenin. And in many ways, what Trotsky was, was the continuity of Lenin in an age where Lenin's perspective and approach to revolution had been usurped by Joseph Stalin. So if Lenin is the continuity of Marxism into the conditions of the 20th century and the sort of architect of the understanding of the importance of establishing a disciplined party to create a revolution. What Trotsky is, is the continuity of that Leninist perspective in a period when the revolution had been, to use the title of Trotsky's 1937 book, the, when the revolution had been betrayed by Stalin and had been uh, sort of led down the path of degeneration. And Trotsky was like many of the Bolsheviks of the, the era of 1917, an incredibly complex and cosmopolitan figure. He was at home writing about literature as well as party discipline. He was in the revolutionary upsurge of 1917, the leader of the Red Army. He was a person in the early years of the Communist International, a leading uh, figure in uh, the sort of apparatus of the making of the first Soviet worker state. And his flaw, I suppose, was that he was in some senses less the bureaucratic apparatus man than he might have been. He, he was on the ground as a figure of considerable authority in the early years of the communist movement in the Soviet Union. He was there when Stalin began the process of usurping power. 
and he backed away on more than one occasion in the early to mid-1920s of fighting full out for what he believed to be the necessary political and programmatic orientation that he saw declining within the Soviet apparatus. Uh, Stalin was more the apparatchik, more the, the, the sort of bureaucratic figure, more the orchestrator and organizer of, in some senses, the limitation of revolutionary possibility. Trotsky, more the visionary. And this would, of course, uh, ultimately run its course in Trotsky being uh, exiled to Siberia and then driven around the world in the words of his autobiography, traversing the planet without a visa. That is, he had no country. And he found his way to Mexico, but he was hounded at every turn by Stalinist agents who almost certainly played a role in the death of his son in Paris, obviously played a role in the desperation that drove uh, his daughter to suicide, and ultimately to Trotsky's uh, murder by a Stalinist agent in Mexico in 1940. He is a figure as tragic in some ways uh, as he is heroic. And if you've actually read very much of Trotsky and his history of the Russian Revolution, a massive study is not only a political uh, exploration of revolution, it is a literary accomplishment of considerable magnitude. Trotsky was an intellect and an organizer, a revolutionary and a major cultural figure. Uh, few, few have reached uh, the heights that he did. And learning from him, in spite of the layers of condescension in which his experience uh, is suffocated, is, I think, mandatory for anyone considering themselves uh, on the left. Part of your book addresses what's called the Black Belt Nation Thesis, developed and pushed by many leftists in the U.S. What did those who adhered to this thesis advocate, and what did James Cannon think of it? The revolutionary left has always agreed that the whole issue of what role will race play in an American revolutionary movement, how will blacks be involved in the struggle to transform uh, American society, these are cent this is a central question. But in the left, there's no question that uh, up to 1920, much of the left, including the Socialist Party of Eugene Debs, was compromised quite acutely on the black question. Racism existed within the Socialist Party. Many leading elements of the Socialist Party embraced racist understandings. And of course, this limited acutely the extent to which blacks uh, were involved in the Socialist Party and involved in the, in the revolutionary movement. When the Communist Party was formed in 1921, and the Communist International with Lenin, Trotsky, and others involved began to uh, push the American communists to address the black question. Uh, they really, according to Cannon, forced the American revolutionary movement for the first time to seriously confront racism among white workers and racism among white radicals and to put the whole question of uh, black Americans on the agenda of what the left had to do and had to address. And in 1928, under the influence of Joseph Stalin, Lenin had long since died, Trotsky was, was basically in the process of being exiled. And Stalin's contribution, theoretically, supposedly, to uh, the uh, revolutionary tradition was concentrated on the national question, on questions of national identification and national struggles. And the common turn embraced in 1928 a programmatic orientation to black Americans that was known as the Black Belt Nation thesis. And what this did was suggest that in parts of the American South 
where blacks were a significant or majority of the population. The way to address the whole question of the Negro, as uh, blacks were then referred to, was to struggle for a black belt nation. And of course, that nation would be established in those areas where the old plantation system had existed. Now, the importance of this Black Belt Nation thesis was that it did actually signal that the Communist International and the American Communist Party were making a turn towards addressing blacks in a serious way. The problem with the Black Belt Nation thesis was that it put the discussion of American blacks and their role in the revolutionary movement on a national foundation rather than a class foundation. And in calling for a black belt nation to be established in the deep American South, in some ways the American Communist Party was way out of touch with what most blacks actually wanted. Because blacks were trying to escape the confinements of that plantation system. They were moving at this very time en masse into northern states where they were finding industrial work. They were seeking to, you know, get away from the Dixie South and all that it represented to them and all that, that the historical legacy of slavery that hung over that region. Um, when Cannon and company broke from the American Communist Party in 1929, 2829, they were still very much wedded to the Black Belt Nation thesis. They thought that it was the right approach because so many of them had been so acclimatized to inactivity on the question of race that in putting the, you know, it, that, that they saw that what the Communist International and, and the American Communist Party had done was put blacks back into the forefront of the American revolutionary struggle. It took Cannon and the Communist League of America quite a while to break out of the limitations of that perspective. And in 1933-34, they actually, in the Communist League of America, established a committee to look at the whole question, the black question, as they understood it. And it was then that Max Shackman wrote an important pamphlet, uh, never really published until Christopher Phelps uh, published an edition of it with Verso Press a number of years ago. But in that pamphlet, The Negro and Communism, Shackman broke decisively from the Black Belt Nation thesis and said, the struggle should not be for the creation of a black nation, but our struggle should be a vigorous one for equality. In every sphere of life, be it in the trade unions, uh, in housing and, and its segregations, uh, in education, in social welfare, in the unemployed movements. What communists need to be doing and what the Communist League of America as Trotskyists needs to be doing is struggling for black equality and putting the black question in the forefront of our struggles. Now, this pamphlet that Shackman wrote was then critiqued within the movement by one of Cannon's close allies at the time, a man named Hugo Oler. And they ended up arguing, the American Trotskyist movement ended up arguing with uh, Trotsky himself around this question. Trotsky still clung to the notion in the late 1930s that the Black Belt Nation thesis had been a valuable contribution of the Communist International. And in conversations with Arnie Swaback, for instance, who went to speak with Trotsky, all kinds of questions were raised. And it revealed, in some senses, the, the sort of brilliant, abstract nature of Trotsky's engagement with questions like this, but also his total misunderstanding of the situation in the United States. He, for instance, he asked uh, Swaback, he said, do blacks have their own language? He said, surely in slavery, they, they used, uh, you know, their own language to keep them apart from the oppressive plantation owners. And Swabeck, puzzled, said, well, they may speak in dialect in certain parts of, you know, the American South, but in general, American Negroes speak English. And of course, that was the touchstone. Blacks in America were 
a racialized subordinate group subject to lynch law, racisms of the worst kind, and often unadulterated oppression. But they were also integrated by the 1920s into American society. They were not a separate nation. They were a largely class-ordered, racialized uh, contingent. And the Trotskyists in the United States wrestled with this question. And they never really resolved it adequately because they were caught up in so much uh, of the way of other struggles and because there were differences among them. Here's the point. The notion of creating a black belt nation in the United States was totally out of touch with political reality. It had nothing to do with a Marxist approach to blacks in the United States. And it was not what most blacks wanted. There were very few blacks in the United States, save for some, some communist figures who'd been to Moscow and the Lenin School and assimilated this doctrine, like Harry Haywood. But there were very, very few blacks, including black leaders in the CP, who actually thought this was a good way to approach the black question. And the argument of most historians on the left and most sympathizers of, a, of communism is that the Black Belt Nation thesis showed that the Communist Party was willing to struggle for blacks. Well, you could have struggled for blacks in other ways, in relentlessly struggling for equality and demanding it, that would have actually attracted more blacks and actually shown much more clearly a class politics rather than a national politics. And that divide around race is still with us. Is it a class question or is it a race question? And I don't think we can answer by saying definitively it's one or the other, but I think there are ways of leaning and tilting in one direction or another that make all the difference in terms of you know how we proceed, where we struggle, and in what ways we make common cause across racial divides. What was distinctive about Canon as a leftist in the period covered by your most recent book, the period being 1928 to 1938? Well, I, I think that's a very good question, and it, it opens out into what really was unique about Cannon. And the way I would answer that is that he was a figure who, contrary to so many in the American revolutionary tradition, bridged divisions. Many of the early communist leaders were either trade union figures or political figures. What Cannon was was someone who transcended that differentiation by bridging it. So for instance, he was a leading figure in the American revolutionary left of a political nature. He saw things always in political terms. But he always also had his pulse on what it was possible for and what it was within the boundaries of the American working class to accomplish. He was attuned to trade unionism, although he himself really was almost never in a trade union. The industrial workers of the, of the world that he was a part of as his youth was in some senses a workers' organization very different from the normal standards of trade unionism. He saw trade, the trade union question and the importance of trade unions as vital to the revolutionary movement, but he insisted that one had to have a political perspective and see them, warts and all, within the political possibilities and political struggles of the time. This meant that he spent a great deal of his life in labor defense struggles, defending trade unionists and radicals who were the victims of state repression. This meant that he spent a great deal of his time building left-wing caucuses inside of unions and left alternative leaderships of unions. But he did not see the unions necessarily as the end point of transforming American class relations. 
This was in some senses what he learned from being in the IWW, which often saw the class struggle at the point of production as the sole basis of activity leading to social transformation. The, the old wobbly saying, we will build the new society in the shell of the old. Cannon understood that, yes, you had to build the new society in the shell of the old, but that at the same time, you had to create an entirely new egg. And in some senses, that was Cannon's unique contribution. He politicized class experience in a way that very few others in the revolutionary left were instinctually able to do because he had a kind of uh, feeling for class sensibilities that many others often removed in their sort of political spheres lacked. And I think that was really Cannon's uh, you know, major contribution. And in this, he came close to being the best that the American working class had to offer in ways that so many of his comrades in the Communist Party and many in the Trotskyist movement didn't aspire to, but never quite achieved and realized. Um, and in this sense, he was a, a unique and exemplary figure in the American left. Brian Palmer talking about his book, James P. Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928 to 38. There will be a third volume in Brian's series on Cannon. The book will take the reader from where the second volume ends until Cannon's death in 1974. Brian told me it'll probably be two to three years before the third volume, which he has already written, is published. And I'm CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>